Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 28, verse 11. Yeah, um, the lights are kind of flickering. A couple of years ago, during one of the weeks when people are giving speeches in this speech class, uh, this one student who had been very nervous about her first speech, she's about halfway through her speech and the lights go out in the room at CU Duncan, and it's pitch black. I mean, you can't see anything. And there was kind of a, a pause for 15 seconds. I mean, you literally can't see your hand from your face. And she's in the middle of her speech. She didn't want to give. And then she just kept going. She'd, she'd memorized the speech verbatim, and she kept going. And the students were kind of giggling, not just because it's so crazy that she's doing it in, in pitch dark. And they're kind of laughing. And I said, hey, you know, uh, Julie or whatever her name was, uh, you don't have to do that. We'll just, uh, you know, wait until next week. And she said, I started and I'm going to finish. <laughs> so some people, she probably was happy nobody was looking at her, right? But then uh, this past semester in April, late April, I was teaching a night class over there and it's raining and raining and the students were kind of laughing at me and I looked behind me. Of course, I'm next to all this electrical stuff and the the water was coming through the wall in the floor level and it was like right lapping at my heels, like two inches. And they, were, they, I guess, were wondering if I'd ever notice, you know. And I decided to kind of adjust. So when you live in Oklahoma, you got to be tough, right? It's not easy. Well, today we come to the end of the book of Acts. And as we work through these verses, one thing I want to emphasize is the end of the book of Acts is just the beginning of the work of the church. And I mean capital C Church, Dennis. It's bigger than Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church or First Baptist Church Duncan uh, or First Methodist Church or First uh, Presbyterian Church. The capital C Church is that group of all born-again believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what country, color, or culture, or denomination uh, they're a part of. But the end of the book of Acts is just the beginning of the work of the church. And that work will continue until the end of the of the age, till the end of the church age, which among other things means it's our turn. This is our generation. It's our turn to, as it were, start making some church history and to contribute to the ongoing fulfillment of Christ's great commission, despite the fact that increasingly in our culture, being a Christian involves being misunderstood and marginalized. And we're going to talk about those things today as we finish the book of Acts. But let's pray for our uh, teachability, for our troops, peace officers, firefighters, and for uh, those who are in charge of the outside games during the uh, uh, Super Summer today. And uh, Danny, would you lead us in opening prayer in that direction? Thank you, my man. Uh, talking about the work of the church, which begins the book of Acts, it's interesting that today... Uh, we're going to celebrate what God did in Haiti with our mission team uh, as as even a church like this, just on this little corner in a little town, can have significant uh, participation in the Great Commission. Uh, I want to start, warm up your capacity for abstract thought uh, by looking at five funny church signs I don't think I've ever shown you before. Okay, This is Cape Coral Community Church. Now is a good time to visit. Our pastor is on vacation. Now, uh, this has to do with the name of the church. Uh, they have one of my favorite verses on the marquee sign, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
But then notice the name of the church here, Ben. Bragtown <laughs> Baptist Church. Yeah. Uh, New Life Baptist Church. Be nice to your kids. Someday they will choose your nursing home. And I'm hoping that Jamie will get me the two-meal-a-day plan. And I'm not sure that's, you know, definite at this point. So pray about that. Crossroads Trinity Church. Bring your spiritual marshmallows. Our pastor is on fire. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like the ring of that. And then finally, uh, Northgate Baptist Church. God, help me to be the person my dog thinks I am. People say, you know, dogs dogs a man's best friend, and other people say your wife's your best friend. But I would say uh, in Oklahoma, wait till August. If you lock your wife and your dog in the trunk of your car for four hours, when you come back, which one will be happy to see you? Your dog will be so happy to see you, and your wife will be so angry. So, yeah. Okay, that's true. Uh you know the big the big uh, picture is important here because really once you get to uh Acts 21 you end the final missionary journey of Paul and you're in Jerusalem and all these things happen and eventually ends up in Rome so just to get kind of a big synthetic picture you know we started uh the church right there uh day of Pentecost Acts chapter 2 after the death resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ but end of the third missionary journey, Paul comes to Jerusalem, there's a riot, the Roman soldiers take him in for his own safety into custody, uh, all kinds of hearings, legal and religious. He ends up uh, in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region, for two years, appeals his case to Caesar, and so to Caesar he goes, and we have sailed from Caesarea, this amazing port that many of us have been to, um, to Sidon, up under Turkey, Remember what happened in Crete? They wanted to go from Lacey to Phoenix, not Arizona, but Crete. Got caught in a storm and end up shipwrecked in Malta. And that's where we're going to pick up the story uh, today as we finish the book. Uh, we've been talking about Paul's voyage to Rome. We talked about before the shipwreck, the shipwreck last week, God's miracle man on Malta. And now we're going to see Rome, sweet Rome. Look at those verses right there, verses 11 through 16 will end the voyage to Rome, and then we're going to go beyond that, of course. Uh, here's another map. You never know exactly what they're going to look like on the PowerPoint, but I think that's, that's a nice one. So we're, you know, here's the boot of Italy, right, Russell? That's Italy. And so we're going to pick up right there on this port, uh, I guess Malta, go to this port, go up to the tip of the boot, and eventually to Rome. And he's going to recount that in the next couple of verses. As we look at verses 11 through 16 first, as part of a larger section where we'll also see, once in Rome, Paul will proclaim Christ to the local Jewish leaders, and then the, the end of the book itself. But let's read verses 11 through 16, Paul's Israel to Italy trek comes to an end. Yeah, Verse 11. At the end of three months, they've been shipwrecked, and then they, they managed to all, 276 of them, get onto the island of, of Malta. After the end of three months there on Malta, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. Remember, that was important because they left Caesarea in a smaller ship, caught a bigger ship uh, in Turkey. 
uh, an Alexandrian ship, the biggest ship of its day. It was a grain-carrying ship and also some other cargo and some passengers. So they're on a big ship, no problem, uh, which had wintered on the island of Malta and which had the twin brothers for his figurehead. What's that mean? We'll talk about it. After we put in at Syracuse, there on the eastern shore of Sicily, we stayed there for three days, and from there we sailed around and arrived at uh, uh, Regium. And a day later, south wind sprang up, and so we went to Patiali. And after we found some brethren, some Christians there, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, we ultimately came to Rome, the greater Rome area. And the brethren, when they heard about this, that they had hit Patiali and were walking toward Rome, it's still like a 50-mile walk, uh, came as far away, flash flood warning until 1.15, okay? So don't leave. There's flash floods. You have to stay here, which means I can preach to 1.15. That's a, that's a miracle. Okay, that's good. No, I'm kidding about that. That's just a flash flood warning. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to get through this one way or another. And so we found some brethren there and stayed seven days, probably because the, the centurion in charge of this said, stay here, because we've got these prisoners in addition to Paul. i got to fill out some paperwork and get a detail to kind of accompany us into the city and kind of know where I need to go. That's something like that. Some red tape was probably involved that Luke doesn't get into. And thus we came to greater Rome and we're... Uh, seeing some brethren, and watch what happens here. Everybody, including the Apostle Paul, needs a pat on the head occasionally, some warm fuzzies. Uh, uh, and when the brethren heard about it, they came as far as the market of Ap- Ap- Appius, and the three inns, we'll show you what that looks like on a map, it's just on the road to Rome from that port. And when Paul saw them, these fellow Christians that are, have heard about him, have read the letter he wrote to the Romans, which he wrote about three years before this, uh, Paul thanked God and took courage. So it's always nice when somebody uh, affirms you and pats you on the head and gives you some encouragement. So when we arrived at Rome proper, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. He wasn't in a cell or down in the Mamertine dungeon uh, as a citizen waiting for an appeal, not found guilty of anything yet. He would have been confined but comfortable, uh, although he was uh, accompanied by a soldier uh, in his house arrest who was guarding him. Let's go back and look at a couple of things. What, what I want you to see for sure is that Paul's long trek on that map, you know, that we showed you a minute ago, back uh, back there, uh, like 900 miles, it's a long way. That trek ends in a time frame and after events that Paul never expected, but they were all arranged by God's providence. I mean, uh, there's a lot of surprises in life. And uh, you've got to kind of go with the flow. But we talked about waiting in God's will a few weeks ago. Remember, Jack? And we said, hey, when we're forced to wait for things, uh, we have to rest in God's providence, that he knows how all the uh, events and the people involved need to line up. And ultimately, he's in charge of our schedule, whether we like it or not. And it's okay for God to have a different time frame than we we anticipated. We've got to kind of realize that. So Paul's trek... Uh, ends in a time frame and after events that Paul wouldn't have imagined or signed up for, but arranged by God's providence. But the bottom line is Paul is safely in Rome. He got there. And Paul had been told by the Lord himself, you are going to witness for me in Rome. It's going to happen. 
So God does keep these promises. Ultimately, our trek isn't to Rome or isn't even to Colorado Springs, right, Debbie? But uh, it's to heaven, you know. Uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. So, Clay, you're a believer. Put your name in the blank. Or Clay Ward. And if I go to prepare a place for Clay Ward, I'm going to come back and receive him, either at the rapture or when we depart in physical death. So these places he mentions are all real places. Uh, Patiali was the, the port that was the most used, and it was the largest in the area. So these large grain ships would have to stop there. There was another port a little closer if you're just going for a, a small ship. But uh, as a Navy veteran, Doug will tell you, uh, big ships, some big ships can only go in some big ports. So that was the biggest port in the area. So Paul's getting off there, and as he's walking to Rome, he's interacting with believers from that area. Now, this is uh, in uh, late February 60 A.D. Okay, now Paul wrote a book called Romans in 57 A.D., about, seven, about three years before that. He was in Corinth in Greece, and he wrote the book of Romans that many of us consider to be Paul just kind of sitting down under the Spirit and laying out everything you basically need to know about Christianity. Most of his other letters are called occasional letters because he's putting out fires. When he writes uh, the letters to the Thessalonians, they're facing intense persecution and getting some false teaching, so he deals with that. Uh, many of his letters are just responding to things going on on the ground. He's got to answer but in Romans, as he points out, he'd never been to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. This is the way he arrives in Rome three years later. But he's writing to this group, this small group of Christians in Rome he's heard about. He knows some of these people because he's met them in other places. But they don't have any major problems. They're not uh, facing persecution at that point. This is too early in church history for persecution to start. Uh, they don't have any big problems in the church he has to kind of put out, put the fires out. So he's just kind of writing this called Normal Paul. If he just can just kind of lay out what you need to know, that's what he does in the book of Romans. He talks about four things. He talks about sin, salvation, God's sovereignty, God's providence, and the need for Christians to do service. Those are the four things he talks about in Romans. And apparently that book has helped yield a lot of fruit because we've got believers that are excited to meet this apostle they've heard about, even though he's uh, chained to a Roman soldier and has kind of uh, an uncertain uh, appointment with uh, the emperor. Um, there's the Colosseum. The bad news is the Colosseum uh, wasn't begun, this Colosseum, until uh, several years after this. Uh, I, I looked at several different places. I watched the documentary recently on the Colosseum, and it's really neat. Uh, and uh, I didn't realize that they didn't really start building the Colosseum until about 70 A.D., and it took about uh, 10 years to finish it. But i show you this picture just to emphasize that this, although this is built a century or a decade or two after Paul, a uh, decade after Paul got there, n- notice the size of this building. I mean, these are people. Those, those aren't ants. Those are people. And they built this thing that had that kind of level of technology uh, there was well over a million people that populated Rome, and you, you hear room, you hear estimates as far as three or four million. Uh, there was a pretty sizable Jewish community there at this time. Ten 
to 60,000, it's estimated. So uh, Paul is uh, under house arrest. He's got all the rights of a Roman citizen, so he's going to be confined but comfortable waiting for his appeal to come up. But realize that this is a real place, real people, real events. And Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and uh, Judea, the area right around, and even in Samaria, and ultimately out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when you go from Jerusalem, the epicenter of Old Testament Judaism, to Rome, the epicenter of the Western world, that's that's way out there. I mean, that's, that's a whole paradigm shift differently. And we're going to see, despite all of the uh, perils of Pauline that, that Paul had to deal with and all of the opposition the church continues to face, God gets the message out. The gospel is never imprisoned. Uh, Christians can be imprisoned, but the truth can't be imprisoned. Okay, So, yeah, go back for a minute here. Three months on the Isle of Malta, they get on a big ship. The twin brothers, uh, for luck and for help, the superstitious pagans would carve something, some Greek or Roman god, on kind of the snout of their ship. And the twin brothers are two Greek Roman gods we know about that didn't actually exist, lowercase g, Castor and Pollux. These were the twin sons of Zeus. And they were like the patron gods of sailors and seamen. And um, they also were the namesake for one of the constellations, one of the uh, constellations in the zodiac. The twins? Which one's the twins? Gemini? Right, Gemini were named after uh, Castor and Pollux. So we get to the last phases of his long trip. We get uh, to the city of Rome, and his bottom line is verse sixteen. He's confined but comfortable. Go back to chapter twenty-four, verse twenty-three. Uh, Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen, and he insisted they be respected. You know, that's going to be important for us. We need to know our rights under the U.S. Constitution and insist they be uh, respected. Now, unfortunately, I think those rights are going to be uh, interpreted away into the mist, into the ether, because, as you know, I mean, Congress should make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's what the Constitution says, okay? But that's going to be increasingly interpreted not as freedom of religion but freedom from religion or freedom of worship, which means in here you can believe the Bible stuff if you want to, but don't mention it out there. That's what they're going to say. That was not the intent, and I think, okay. Well, they were, okay. I'm not getting a message there. Who's got, is it still raining? Yeah. And I don't like little, if we have a tornado across the street, we'll, uh, and the tornado thing is basically uh, we're going to go in the hall because they say uh, go where there's no windows, and uh, we're going to pray, go in the hall, and keep praying. That's what we're going to do if there's a tornado. So just so you'll know. Okay. Yeah, so boom. Let's go to the next pa- passage there, verse 17 through 28. So we get to Rome, and what does Paul do? Does he feel sorry for himself? Uh, you know, I didn't read that passage, did I? Let's go back to chapter 24. Sorry. We're talking about his Roman citizenship. Well, I'm glad I'm not getting graded on this sermon. Uh, <laughs> 24, 23, I think is what I want here. Yeah. 
Look at, in fact, you know what? Let's go back to 22. We've got plenty of time uh, <laughs> before the lights go out. Look at 22, 24. I think this is an important thing we need to know. Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen, and he insisted they be respected in, in, in a respectful way. And that's got to be our strategy, right? As Christians increasingly being marginalized and even vilified. Look at chapter 22, 24, which just comes up. You know, there's a riot in uh, the temple area. The Jews were going to pull uh, Paul apart. The Roman soldiers take custody of him and try to stop the riot and hold on to him for his own uh, safety. And then we end up with a bunch of series of these different hearings we had to go through. But 24, 23. Yeah. Verse 23. That's not what I want. I, I went back 22. Boy, I'm... Yeah, 2224. Sorry. I've told this jokes many times, but you know, I recently dreamed, had this nightmare, I was preaching a really bad sermon and woke up and realized I was. So maybe, maybe it's this one I was thinking about. Uh, yeah. So we're in Jerusalem. They've just taken Paul custody. The Romans have to get him away from the crowd and to calm the crowd. And Paul's preached the gospel as he's leaving. But look what happens here. 24, 23. And as they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander, the Roman colonel, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging. They're going to give him 39 lashes to find out why he started this riot. They're assuming he's guilty. So that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him this way. But when they stretched Paul out to give him his lashing, it could kill him. Paul said to the centurion who was in charge of that detail, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman, a Roman citizen, and uncondemned, no due process of law. Uh, keep reading. When the centurion, the sergeant, heard this, he went to the colonel and told him, what are you about to do? This guy's a Roman citizen. We're all going to be in trouble. And the commander said, came to Paul and said, are you a Roman? You're not, you're not kidding, right? And Paul says, yeah. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Today we call it a bribe. And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen, uh, and therefore, you know, I have certain rights, like you can't whip me to get a confession out of me. Okay, now I've got to chapter 24. So he's established the fact he's a citizen. He knew his rights. He insisted they be respected, and not just for his benefit, but for the next Christian that they try to railroad. God's not dead too. Does that sound familiar? Right, kind of thing? Um, 24, 23. 2423. Uh, this is after Governor Felix has interacted with Paul and Felix decides not to decide anything about Paul. Look at verse 23. Then he, that is the governor, gave orders to the centurion for him, Paul, to be kept in custody there in Caesarea and yet to have some freedom. He's a Roman citizen uncondemned uh, and not to prevent any of Paul's friends, including Dr. Luke, from ministering to him. So he's confined but comfortable because he's a Roman citizen and because he's insisted that those rights be respected. And I go back to chapter 27, the beginning of the voyage uh, to Rome and the big ship and the, and the two different ships we got to, got to the point of Malta. But look at verse 23. The first place they stop on the voyage to Rome was Sidon. And it says in verse 20, verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius, who's the centurion in charge of the prisoners, including Paul, treated Paul as a Roman citizen who hasn't been 
found guilt of anything at all yet, uh, treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to get off the boat and go see his friends, although certainly accompanied by a soldier, and receive care. So when we come back here and we read in chapter 28, kind of our bottom line once we get to Rome, uh, he entered Rome and he's, you know, a prisoner waiting for a hearing, but as a citizen, he's allowed to stay by himself, house arrest, as will be emphasized later, with the soldier who is guarding him. And apparently they'd give him an eight-hour shift. Uh, they'd have one soldier for eight hours, another soldier for eight hours, another soldier for eight hours. Some people said, you have to feel sorry for the soldiers chained to Paul because, you know, guess what? He's going to let him. he's going to preach, right? So that's the beginning. We're finally in Rome. Now, look what happens. He makes priority. I can be confined, but the truth continues, and he invites the leading uh, lights of the Roman Jewish community to come and interact with him. I think he wants to share the gospel with them, for sure, but he also wants to give them his side of the story before they get rumors or other statements that Paul's a bad guy, tried to kill Romans, tried to kill Jews in Jerusalem, is against the temple, trying to destroy the temple. Those kind of rumors that are swirling around. we got two meetings here, the first meeting and then the big meeting. Let's look at the first meeting, verse 17 through 22. After three days, Paul kind of gets himself organized. He's in Rome for three days. He called together through messengers. He sent one of his friends to go to the synagogue and find out who the big shots were. Uh, called together those who were the leading men of the Jewish community in Rome. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I have done nothing against our people, disregard anything you've heard, although they're going to say we haven't heard anything about your situation in a minute, but regardless of what you're going to hear about me or why I'm under custody, uh, here's what you need to know. I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans, and when they had examined me, they, the Romans, were willing to release me. Remember they said, boy, he had an appeal, he could have gone free, uh, which may or may not have actually happened, but they couldn't find anything against him according to Roman law, because there was no ground for putting me to death. I didn't, didn't do anything wrong. But when the Jews, the Jewish leaders in the area, objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Remember, they were going to send him back to Jerusalem one more time, and he said, no, I can't get a fair trial there, they're going to kill me. I appealed to Caesar. Um, not that I had any accusation uh, against my nation. I'm not anti-Israel, anti-temple, anti-anything. In fact, I believe the prophets, the Old Testament, teaches everything I'm teaching about Jesus. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, the Jewish leaders of the city of Rome, for I am wearing this chain, and he's chained to this Roman soldier, uh, for the sake of the hope what Israel's looking forward to, the coming of the Messiah. And they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea, from the Jewish community in and around Jerusalem concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here, there's a lot of coming and going in and out of Rome, uh, and reported or spoken anything bad about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are about Christianity. They know what he's associated with. For concerning this sect, S-E-C-T, they're still seeing it as kind of a abnormal kind of malignant growth maybe on Judaism. It's known to us that it, Christianity, is spoken against everywhere. Paul's assuming they know who he is, and they're saying, we really haven't heard about you, big boy, but we have heard about what you're representing. And we've heard it's no darn good. You know, it's it's a hijacking of Judaism kind of thing. So and he's, you know, they're saying, hey, we're happy to be here. Tell us what you want to tell us. Um, 
Yeah, boom, stop there. Now let's transition to the big meeting. Uh, when they had said a day, so yeah, we want to get together, but we need more of our people to hear what you've got to say. So when they said a day uh, to meet with Paul, they came to him at his lodging there in large numbers, in, in a larger group than the first meeting. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning what? Joining the Baptist Church, joining the Methodist Church, uh, the greatness of Dallas Seminary, the weirdness of Tangwood Bible Fellowship. Yeah, you know, when I get together with with pastors, even the local ones, you know, I don't even go with we don't pass an offering plate, we don't have formal membership. These people melt down. I mean, they cannot handle. It. Don't even say that. What if our people found out you can actually have a church without passing an offering plate? I'm not trying to brag. I used to just try to tell them that we were different, but. I don't even mention that anymore. It just, it ruins the lunch for everybody, you know, so. Okay. The latest warning here is, there's a hurricane in Marlowe. Run for your lives. That's the one thing we don't have to worry about. Debbie and I grew up in southeast Texas, and the one thing we had to worry about was hurricanes. But, I mean, you can see it coming. You know it's coming. You've got weeks, you got days now, uh, at least, to get ready. But Oklahoma, everything but hurricanes, right? you got to be tough to live in Oklahoma. Which is a good thing, actually. But yeah, look, Ben, he's trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach. Now, persuasion, according to the textbook Cameron University uses for speech, is the process of creating, reinforcing, or changing other people's beliefs or behavior. Okay, And it's a lot easier to inform people about facts and persuade them they need to create, change, or... Uh, uh, reinforce their beliefs or the behaviors, but the term persuasion is a big deal in the book of Acts. We need to share our testimonies in the gospel clearly and persuasively. So you got to kind of put your, your feet in other people's shoes. Go back to chapter 17, and I'm pretty sure I got the right numbers this time. 17 verse 4. And by the way, the, the Pledge of Allegiance stuff, that was my bad. We had it on the slides from last week, but I should have broke them out specifically in the front of this. It's my fault. Won't happen again. So I apologize to David, Krista, and everybody else. On the other hand, why don't you people know the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag? See, a real preacher would go, you should know that. And I don't know it. I know, kind of know it, but I don't know it perfectly, so I can't. I'm not going to blame you for that, but it was, it was my fault. But we'll fix that. That's it's easy. Uh, chapter 17, second missionary journey. We're in Thessalonica, or we're getting there. Verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which is in northern Greece today. Uh, we'd call it Macedonia back then. And there was a synagogue of the Jews there. So what does Paul always do when he hits the new town? He goes to the synagogue because they got the Old Testament. And he preaches Jesus from the Old Testament, sees what happens, and goes as long as he can until they kick him out. They eventually kick him out. Then he goes to the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation. Everyone who believes to the Jew first, because they got the scriptures, and also to the Greeks. So he hits uh, Thessalonica, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, to the Jewish synagogue, <clears throat> for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. We would call that the, the Old Testament explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the guy who came so that Jack Mitchell could go to heaven when he dies, 
and Ron Miller could go to heaven when he dies, and more importantly, that Brad McCoy could go to heaven when he dies, that the Christ had to suffer on the cross and pay for our sins and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, this Yeshua of Nazareth, who I'm proclaiming you, he is the Christ. And some of them in the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica were what? Were persuaded. They were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and uh, a number of the leading women. But the Jewish leaders from down the road became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the market, formed a mob, and they forced them out of town. But some were persuaded. Go to chapter 18, verse 12 through 14. Still second missionary journey. Now we're in southern Greece and Corinth, considered to be a very immoral evil place, and yet the gospel shines very brightly against that dark background. Uh, and you remember, uh, Paul's been there for 18 months, but while Gallio was proconsul of the region of Achaia, the Jewish leaders in the city rose up with one accord against Paul, brought him before the Bema, the judgment seat, saying, here's the problem. This man, Paul, persuades men to worship God, contrary to the way we understand the law. He's persuading people. We have to be persuasive, okay? We gotta explain the gospel in terms people can relate to. It's called contextualizing the gospel. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. Third missionary journey. We're in, uh, Ephesus. Huge city. Not as big as Rome, but very, very big. 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue. Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months before they kicked him out, reasoning and persuading, right, about the kingdom of God. And then one more, look at 19, verse 26. Uh, we get the uh, the people who make idols in the city. That union gets angry at Paul, and they start this big riot, remember, that ends up in the theater. But just as a little part of that in verse 26 of chapter 19, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also the whole region, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands, with human hands, are no gods at all. That sounds like an airtight you know, argument to me, but they, they weren't crazy about it because they were losing their business, and people don't like to lose their business. Go back to uh, chapter 28. Notice when we read about Paul interacting with these Jewish folks in the city, it says that some, verse 24, were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others just would not believe. Okay, uh, That happens a lot in the book of Acts. Some do and some don't. It's going to happen in your life. It's, it's kind of blows your mind. That this truth about Jesus that's so wonderful to Sherry uh, is just odious to other people. I mean, they, just, they don't understand it. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. They want to deal with it. It's an amazing thing that the, the same truth can be so beautiful to some and so grotesque uh, to others. But that's just the, the life uh, we live. That's in a fallen world. So uh, get used to it. All right? Boom. Look at verses 30 through 31. Now notice, I'm jumping over verse 29. Now, a lot of times I'll leave a verse out on my PowerPoint, and it's my fault. It's my mistake. You know, 17 through 28, then the next slide is 30. I jumped over 29. Why did I do that? Well, most of you probably in your English Bibles have those verses in a bracket. For instance, the Ryrie Study Bible has a bracket around the words of verse 29 
And then Eric, I'm sure. You got your Riber Study Bible? You got it? Okay. What does the footnote say about 2829? Manuscripts. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you know, we've got the New Testament authors writing their, their text, and then you've got a copying process, and we've got 5,500 Greek manuscripts, but when you look at those, they, they don't all read exactly the same on every jot and tittle. There are some small differences here and there, and with this particular verse, Daryl, it just kind of shows up in the 5th century in one geographical group of manuscripts, and then it's copied after that. The earliest manuscripts, uh, Alexandrinus, Sidiaticus, Vaticanus, these codexes that are full, complete copies of the New Testament, uh, don't have it. It doesn't show up until hundreds of years later in one geographically limited area. How does that happen? Well, look what it says. It's not like uh, everything that Paul said about salvation by grace through faith isn't really true. You really have to be saved by becoming a Baptist, a Roman Catholic, a Buddhist, is that what the verse says? The, the verse says, when he had spoken these words, uh, the Jews departed having a great dispute among themselves. You know what? I didn't read that whole passage. Man, what is the deal here? I'm discombobulated on a Golly. Left some of the best part. Talk about being persuaded and some didn't believe. I don't want to jump over verse 25 and 28. No way. Let's keep reading. Go back to verse 25. And so we've got kind of a, a mixed multitude now. Some of the Jewish folks have been persuaded Others, probably the bulk of them, aren't believing this stuff that Paul's saying about Jesus and Judaism as a tract to Christianity, as it were. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, and he says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah. There's a guy who believes in the inspiration of Scripture. He's saying Isaiah was a smart guy, but he didn't just write Isaiah one day. The Holy Spirit superintended him such that he composed and recorded without any error the text. And when you see the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel, we dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls, not me personally, but 1947, they found the Isaiah Scroll, all 66 chapters, carbon dated about 200 B.C. There's no way, you know, it's, 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 it's exactly what the guy wrote. But it's not just him writing it. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah in his prophecy, and they were citing Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, saying this. And this is Paul saying to them as they leave, most of whom have not, uh, have rejected the gospel, rejected that Jesus is their Messiah. Uh, Isaiah talking to his generation, but Paul's applying the principle here. Go to his people and say, you'll keep on hearing, including hearing scripture in Hebrew, and you won't really understand it. Okay, what's the latest? What's the latest news? Still raining? Okay, yeah, okay, we knew that. Uh, Pam had to go and help, but uh, when, we went to, when we went to Israel in 06, we just started this thing. We'd all signed up with the city of Duncan to get these messages, not knowing it would happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. And we're in, we're in Israel uh, one day. In the middle of the night, they're sending us a warning that was, woke us all up that it was raining in Duncan. So the technology worked, but you got to apply it properly, right? But you know, this is just uh, Paul giving a a biblical commentary on what's happening, rather than him saying, "Hey, we've got to change the message." Some of these people didn't believe it. Let's have let's have beer bus night. Maybe people would come on Wednesday night then if we had beer bus at Wednesday night. We're not going to do that, you know. Uh, some people have better things to do, you know. 
Go to those people and say, you're going to keep hearing. You're not going to shut down your synagogues. You're going to keep going to church and listening to the Bible, but you're going to miss the, miss the boat, as it were. Uh, you'll keep hearing, but won't understand. You'll keep on seeing or not perceive. And here's the problem. The heart of those per- people, generally speaking, has become dull or hardened. And with their ears, they scarcely hear because they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And then I would heal them. So it's like Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23 for the Passion Week. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you, you killed all the prophets. And how often I wanted to call you like a mother hen would call the chicks to himself or herself. But you were unwilling. I wanted you and you don't want me, is what he's saying. Sounds like Jesus wasn't a five-point Calvinist, James, which is interesting. for that, Right? Uh, same thing here. And Jesus actually cites this passage in uh, Matthew, I wrote it down and I've forgotten it. Somebody tell me my footnote here. Matthew 13, in the aftermath of them saying he's a satanically false, satanically possessed false prophet, Jesus cited this same passage and saying, you know what, you had all the light you needed, all the stuff you needed, you don't want it. That's the problem. The problem is not, we haven't given you enough, it's a problem, you don't want it. So it always has to do with the heart. Now let's go back to verse 29. What's so horrible about verse 29? There's nothing bad about it. It's just Paul didn't write it. That's the only problem with it. Okay. Uh, when he had spoken these words, the words from Isaiah, to give a commentary to the bulk of the Jewish folks rejecting him and his message, the Jews departed having a great dispute among themselves. Okay. Now that probably happened, but we believe inspiration has to do with the actual original manuscripts these people write, not with any copying errors that creep in. And what probably happened was, I don't think, when you have passages like this, it just a few places, you have know, a verse like this that will have a footnote on it. What are you going to do with that, Sue? I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with the process. I think God superintended the process, so it was pretty darn good. I'm, you know, supernatural, class B miracle kind of thing. But I think the way these things sort of show up is, uh, Paul didn't write it. The earliest manuscripts kept what Paul wrote. But as you get into certain, this is the Western text type, some guy, probably some scribe, probably is trying to write his first version of a study Bible. And when he gets to verse 28 about people leaving, he probably put on the bottom of the page, underneath the text, because there would be a space at the bottom, he probably put a comment. Down. We okay? In the back, Pam? Okay, I don't usually see you standing. I was afraid maybe we got a message from the back. We needed to know. So, okay, I'm just covering my bases here. I'm already in enough trouble as it is. So, uh, but I think what happened was uh, one of the Western copyists probably wrote this as a footnote. Maybe he was going to preach a sermon the next day on it, and he wanted to wrote that, remember that thing. And what happens is a hundred years later, somebody's going to copy that manuscript, and the guy that wrote the footnote at the bottom and didn't intend it to be part of the text, uh, but maybe drew an arrow up there. Uh, he's dead. He's in heaven. And this scribe is copying it. And he sees this footnote. And he says, hmm, I don't know if that's in there or not. But I don't want, I'd rather have a little too much than not enough. So they kind of put it in there, you know, just to make sure. And so uh, rather than this being a problem, it just shows you how accurate the copying uh, process generally was in as recovered by these multitude of thousands of manuscripts. And you can kind of, something like this jumps out at you because it just appears late in one geographic section doesn't appear anywhere else, and that's kind of what that is. And again, those kind of verses, and you do have some of that in New Testament, and we've always been honest about that. 
You don't have any of them that teach what Paul said about salvation is wrong. None of these, none of these things contradict anything important or add anything that's essential. It's always incidental kind of stuff. And so I think it's important you're aware of that kind of thing. All right, let's get to the end of the book. Book of Acts ends, but the church is just beginning. And so, bottom line for Paul, he stayed two full years in his unrented quarters, just like we saw back in verse 16. The Romans made you pave your own way when you're waiting for your appeal to come up. The government didn't pay for you. And was able to welcome all who came to him. He's able to see people. And when you read the four biblical letters he writes during this period, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, at the end of almost every one of those letters, he mentions people he's, who've come seeing him and people uh, you know that he's been interacting with. So he's able to do a lot of networking, even though he's confined, confined but comfortable. Uh, and notice what happens here. And this is an amazing thing. He's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ will all open this unhindered. What Paul could not do in Jerusalem, Chris, what Paul couldn't do in Jerusalem, he's not able to preach and teach Jesus Christ unhindered. Why not in Jerusalem? He'd get killed. He does that in riot start. He's able to do it in Rome. It's unbelievable. Uh, Andrew, I had that same feeling when we were in Chichihar in China. I mean, we go to Chichihar, Big-hearted Carla meets this guy who's a Communist Party member. The first day we're there, they were watching us. They didn't follow me and Andrew. They knew we were way too smart to talk to a Communist Party member. But Carla, who's got a big heart, meets this guy. He speaks English. He helps him. And then he says, hey, let me show you around this week. And I thought, you know what? The fix is in. They're not going to kill us or hurt us because they want to do the Olympics in a couple years. It'd be bad publicity. But we're, there's no way we're going to get near any unbelievers for a whole week. I had to get on that train all by myself and speak Chinese to get this group up there so we can waste our time. That's kind of in the back of my mind I'm thinking. Now, I do believe in the providence of God, especially after this. But guess what? Next slide. Forty hours later, thanks to the Communist Party member, David, who ran a business, David's English School, remember? We're in a public high school in Red China all day long in a multitude of different classes, and that was my smallest class. You can see more seats in the back. I had like five or six sections all day long, and they'd come in there, and you know what we'd talk about? We'd talk about American holidays. And they all spoke English, just so you'll know. And you know what my last two holidays were? Take a shot. (laughs) Christmas and Easter. I'm in red China, north of North Korea, ending with drawing a cross and an arrow on a blackboard. You think I could do that in American public school? Nowadays, what we could not do in the United States, we could do in red China, you know? What Paul couldn't do in Jerusalem, he's doing in, uh, in Rome. Kind of blows your mind. Now people say, well why did Paul, why, why did Luke is writing this stop here? Why not do the rest of the story? Uh, because the two-year period that the accusers had to make the case had just about finished but hadn't yet finished, and he just stopped where he stopped. But uh, when you look at the letters he writes after this, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and when you look at the prison epistles, especially Philippians where he says, I'm, I'm almost at the end of my two-year period, he basically says in so many words, you can kind of piece together some of the things that probably happened after the book of Acts. 
This is based on Harold Honer's uh, reconstruction. It's not, don't take it to the bank, but I think it's probably essentially correct. He says that uh, Paul would have been released uh, because of the two years statute of limitations would have run out in uh, uh, late spring of 60, or uh, late February of 62 AD. Uh, and then he goes to Macedonia, northern Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica. He writes First Timothy from there in the autumn of 62. Then he goes back to Turkey, especially Ephesus. And he goes to Spain in spring 64, 66. We know when he wrote the book of Romans, he says, I want to come to Rome so I can go to Spain. And there is some church tradition that indicates after his release, he goes to Spain to preach the gospel. Hey, if we get any leaks, I'm ready. This is a pulpit, not a paper holder, but, you know, I, I just work here, you know. Uh, Paul's martyred, uh, Peter, excuse me, is martyred in summer 64. Paul's still doing his thing. <laughs> I'm going to start, I'm going to stop asking what the alert is unless it's a visible tornado within, you know, half a mile of them. Let me know. I'm almost done anyway. You'd think on today of all days, I'd cut it short, wouldn't you? But no, I'm not going to do it. These people, it wasn't easy for Ben to be here today. He had to get wet, you know. So I'm going to give him a full load, whether he likes it or not. Uh, Peter's martyred. Then Paul goes to Crete. What book of Paul's is related to Crete? Titus. Goes to Crete with a guy named Titus. Paul then goes uh, to southern Greece, leaves Titus there, writes the book of Titus, ends up back in Rome to... Uh, to share the gospel, and at that point, uh, the Roman government has decided Christianity wasn't an acceptable branch of Judaism. It was a dangerous religion. When Paul gets to the first time, they're, they're, they're clueless. They, they haven't made that decision, but when he gets back there a few years later, they see him as the ringleader of the trouble, and they arrest him, and they, they execute him uh, in early of 68. So let me finish this way. The end of the book of Acts it was just the beginning of the church age, and now it's our turn to contribute to what's going on. Uh, the end of the book of Acts, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase Winston Churchill, was not the end of the church age. It was not even the beginning of the end of the church age, but it was the end of the beginning. I mean, this period of the apostles was a unique foundational period. Now we'll continue a little bit longer, but after that you have your foundation laid, and then you've got the superstructure of the church, and that's where we are today. So here's the thing. Uh, as Paul discovered, and as you're going to discover, being a Christian uh, involves, quite often, being part of a misunderstood and marginalized minority group. And, you know, 50 years ago, uh, you said, well, that happens everywhere else in banana republics. It'll never happen here. It's happening here. You know, we're kind of marginalized and vilified. And, I mean, we believe in spanking our children. We don't believe in uh, abortion rights, reproductive freedom. And we believe one man, one mar- one man, one woman, one lifetime is the ideal. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I, I got to be careful about saying stuff like that now. I mean, golly, I could probably it's probably hate speech, right? Uh, and for me, the bottom line is uh, being cool and being a Christian are usually two different things. And I know that's something that Sean and James emphasizes. But but Jack, being a being a being cool and being a Christian are usually two different things. And you're a cool dude, man, and you're a good athlete and a really smart person. But you're going to increasingly find out you're going to make it. You're going to make decisions. You know, if if if, uh, compromising your Christian commitment uh, is what's necessary to be cool, you got to punt cool away. Uh, 
You won't believe it, but I did that many years ago myself. And so I'm going to finish with this one. Nero, people always go, well, I mean, yeah, I know the Bible says we've got to submit and respect our leaders, but we're talking about Barack Obama here. We're talking about Hillary Clinton. We're talking about Donald Trump. We can't respect those people, can we? Who was uh, sitting on the uh, on the throne in Rome when Paul gets there in 62? Nero wasn't a born-again Christian. He he was not a rabid anti-Christian yet. He, the, the tide would turn a few years later. So and we've got to put that kind of history back into those statements. And yeah, uh, if possible, we salute the flag, of course. Uh, and we salute our civilian leaders uh, until or unless it's a sin to. And then you say, I'm sorry, sir, but I can't do that. Can't obey that order. Can't shoot those Jews because you don't like them, Hitler. You know, i got to respectfully disobey that order. So uh, we're to face the future with faith, even if you've got Trump and Clinton running against each other, you know, um, which isn't ideal. But then again, they're not running for national pastor. We kind of need somebody maybe to organize the country better, uh, not, not reorganize it, maybe go back to where we're supposed to. Um, and how can you do that, Brad? I mean, you're sliding to the right of Attila the Hun. You can't be happy with all this. I'm not happy with it. I didn't vote for any of this stuff that have the choices we've got. But our future as Christians includes not just the next four years of whoever runs the country or ruins the country, you might say. It includes the now and the not yet. So you got to put the short-term future, like the next 30 years, into a larger context and just keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Okay? Now, Lord willing, weather permitting, uh, next Sunday, we're going to start a, a new series on the seven sign miracles in the book of John. And I worked it out, so feeding a 5,000 fits the week. I'm going to be gone the second time, and you're going to be able to, James is going to cover that. So that's the passage he wanted to teach. So it's a, this is the fourth one in that set. So that's what we'll, we'll, we'll be doing. Lord willing, okay? Yep. Yeah, thanks for saying that. And you, you know what? This was a closed book for me, too, before I went to seminary. I was kind of afraid of it because I knew the charismatics cited some passages and acts to kind of, uh, you know, kind of reinforce their stuff. And so I wasn't sure I was smart enough to read through it and understand it very well. So I just read certain sections of it. But one of the first things we learned at Dallas Seminary was Book of Acts. We had a wonderful teacher. And I went, wow, man, this is so great. It's so wonderful to know this kind of stuff. So thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank, thank you. And thank you for reading that exactly the way I wrote it on that card. <laughs> that was great. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, we are thankful that even though it's raining and miserable outside, we're able to be comfortable in here. And I thank you for the, the message of this book that, uh, Christians can be, uh, hunted and vilified and marginalized and even imprisoned and executed, but the gospel is never, ever imprisoned or limited and your providence works out even all these black dots to fit on the mosaic of history in a way that you're happy with and that when we see all the pieces, we'll be happy with too. So give us the faith to hang in there. Help us to never punt away our Christian convictions to be cool, but also help us to be able to uh, uh, face 
opposition with agape love and rather than anger, maybe some sadness and mourning, but give us uh, extra grace to do the right thing in difficult situations in our day, in our culture, and help us to be consistent enough if we got arrested for being a Christian, we'd be convicted, but to be witnessing all the way. Uh, a lot of needs here. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would uh, use your truth, use your people, and use our fellowship today to be an encouragement to all of us. Uh, open up our ears to listen intently to the report about the Haiti mission trip. I thank you, thank you for putting your hand on Shauna and James to organize this thing, and then for those who in faith went down there, and we pray that the, the seeds they planted will have long-term fruit to your glory. And we thank you again for everyone who's here this morning. We pray for safety as we go home, whether it's now or after second hour. And uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.